turn to the book of Exodus chapter 35. Exodus chapter 35 this evening. I've been praying about what to do next and uh, a little bird said, uh, hey, there's more chapters in Exodus. Once you finish those, once you keep on going, you know, and I said, well, you know, let me look at that. Thought about going into Joshua, but I noticed there is several more chapters and I Obviously, I look at different commentaries to get some guidance to see what other men of God have said about these passages because there's, there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors and looking in commentaries. Uh, they, they help give you that wisdom. They help guide you into spiritual truths and encourage you, and that's always a good thing. And there's not a whole lot of said in these uh, last four or five chapters uh, because a lot of this is repetition of some of the things that have been said. But it's important that we look at these chapters to help us in life. So look at, let's look at Exodus chapter 35, and we'll look at the first few verses to begin with. Exodus chapter 35, starting with verse 1. And Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said unto them, These are the words which the Lord hath commanded that ye should do them. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day there shall be unto you a holy day, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord, Whosoever do work therein shall be put to death, as you kindle no fire throughout the, your habitation upon the Sabbath day. Father, we pray tonight that you just bless your word as we look to it, that you help us, Lord, as we study it and understand it, that we might grasp the truths that you have for us, that we learn even from the example of the children of Israel, Lord. Help us to be obedient. Help us to be submissive to your will always, to know your truth and be willing to do it. We thank you for tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. So Moses started out by talking to the congregation of Israel. Remember, of course, they have, they had, uh, Moses had been up to the mount twice. The second, first time he broke the, the two tablets because of the sin in the camp, because of Aaron's disobedience, because they were worshiping false god. They had built a molten image of a bull, began to worship it, began to dance around it. And uh, he came down, broke the two tablets, and uh, there, was, there, was, there was discipline. As needed to be, whenever there's sin, there's always discipline. And then he went back and got two other tablets, and we talked about that last week. But after that, he begins to uh, talk about different things that need to be done. Of course, he starts here with the Sabbath observance. Obviously, we do not uh, follow the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday. We're not Seventh-day Adventists. We are Christians. You say, what's the difference? Well, Christians in the New Testament began to worship the Lord on Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. It's the Lord's Day. It's different. The Jews, as I found out when I was over in Jerusalem, uh, do the Shabbat, the time uh, their, their Sabbath begins basically sundown on Friday to, to sundown on Saturday for 24 hours. They basically pretty much shut everything down. That's why it was so horrific what happened uh, during, with Hamas. They attacked Israel during their Shabbat, during their time of peace and their time of worship. And there was a couple other things that were going on during that time, but it was a time where they were in their homes. There were a time where the ladies don't even, they don't even turn on their microwaves. They don't even turn on their ovens. They don't cook. They don't use any electricity. It's a time of focusing on God. It's a time of worship. It's a time of peace. And so sad that things happen that way as, as, as we've been seeing on the TV. But the principle is, is, still, the, that is still true. There should be a time throughout our week where we take time to rest. And it's, it's, it's a good thing. Even God himself rested on the seventh day. Now people say, did God need to rest? No, he didn't have to rest because he's God. But he put a pattern 
that, uh, of, of, of events, of actions that we should follow. You say, well, work is good. Yes, work is good, but too much work, like anything, is wrong. You can get out of balance. You could actually work too much. Now, we live in a society where most people don't work enough, but you can go the other end. And one of the worst things that I see in society today with, with people working too much, especially men, when men work too much and they have no time for their children, especially young children. It takes a father and a mother to properly nourish and guide a family. That's how God designed it. That's how God himself designed it. If we try it any other way, it's not the right way. What God designs is always the perfect way. But the world says, well, you know, I got to do this, I got to do that. And we say, well, you know, I got I to keep up with the Joneses, so I got to have four cars, I got to have a two-car garage, I got to have a whole lot of land, and, my, and, and my, in, the, in the meanwhile, I'm working 70, 80 hours, and little Johnny and little Sarah, they have no attention at all. That's the sin of America, trying to live, the, having the American dream by, and the, uh, the whole time, the little ones are, ne are neglected, and they, we wonder when they turn 18 or 19, 75% of them leave the church forever. Why? Because we've got to have our cars. Because we've got to have a boat. Because we've got to have a big house. We've got to have the picket fence and nice yard. It's the American dream. No, dear friend, it's the American nightmare. It's the American nightmare, and it's happening right before our eyes. That's why God said there's principles in life we should live by. And if you violate those principles that we see all the way back in Exodus, to take the time to rest, to take the time to observe God, oh, it's, it's a detriment to us all. But he goes on. He talks about other things. He, he asks for, he asks, uh, God asks for a willing offering. We see here in verse 4, and, and Moses takes, spake unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take him ye among the offering unto the Lord, whosoever is of a willing heart, let him bring it in, an offering of the whole, uh, of, uh, offering of the Lord, gold and silver and brass and, and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and ram skin dyed red and badger skin, shittim wood, and oil for the light, spices for oil, anointing oil for the sweet incense, and onyx stones, and stones to be set for the ephod, and for the breastplate. And every wise hearted among you shall come and make all the Lord hath commanded. The tabernacle, his tent, and his coverings, his thatches, his boards, his bars, his pillars, his sockets, the, the ark, and the staves thereof, and the mercy seat, and the veil of the covering, and the table, and the staves, and all his ve vessels, and the showbread, and the candlestick also for the light, and his furniture, and the lamps. And the oil for the light, and the incense altar, and the staves, and the anointing oil, and sweet incense, and hanging of the door of the entering of the tabernacle, and the altar of burnt offering with the, his brazen gate, his staves, and all the vessels, and laver on his foot, and the hangings in the court, his pillars, and the sockets, and the hanging on the door of the court, and the pens of the tabernacle, and the pens of the court, and their cords, and the cloths of the service, to do service in the holy place, and the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of the sons to minister in the priest's office." What is this? This is the tabernacle. This is the tabernacle. When I was in Israel, I got to see a visual representation of the tabernacle as it would go through the wilderness waterings for about 40 years. And that's where uh, God's people uh, met. 
That's where the offerings were done. That's where the cleansing was done. That's where the priest would go in to make the offering before the Lord uh, once a year. And this was a, a very special place. And I got to see a, a visual of that, an actual prototype of that. And the representation, the laver, the, uh, the, the candlestick, and all the things, the holy of holies. And wonderful, wonderful presentation that these Messianic Jews uh, do for other Christians who go into the land to get an idea of what this was actually like. But this was a building process. And for any building fund, as you well know, those of you who've been around here, uh, money had to be spent, had to be given, so that we could have this right here. And it was a process. It went, it started by somebody having the idea, hey, we need a building. We can't rent here forever, right? We can't stay in this, we can't stay in this place forever, so we need a building. We need a place to, to be. And that, thank God that actually happened. But it didn't just happen overnight. It, it, you know, you've, we've seen pictures of it. I've seen pictures of the process that this, this church went through. I've seen blueprints, actually, of some of the things this, this church went through. And it's a wondrous and glorious thing. All that happened, it didn't just happen overnight. It takes planning. It takes prayer. It takes giving. And so that's what, that's what he was saying. Hey, we, we, these things have to be done. And interesting enough, is if you look at this, this wasn't the first time he, had, he talked about this thing, about putting the, the tabernacle together. They had, they had said it before that they was going to do these things. Actually, in chapters 25 and 31, God told the Israelites how to build the tabernacle. They hadn't done it. Uh, and, of course, Moses went up to the mount and come back down to the mount twice, as we mentioned. But now he's reiterating. He's saying again, this is exactly what needs to be done. We need the tabernacle. We're moving from Mount Sinai. From Mount Sinai. We're going into the land. We're going into the promised land. We need this tabernacle where we, as a people, can meet with God. So they need, what do they need to get this? They needed something from the people. They needed, they needed their stuff that they uh, got from Israel. And so it's important. Often that we repeat ourselves when we're given instruction. You who are parents, repeat yourself often, don't you? You who are uh, em employers, you repeat yourself often. You who are wives, you repeat yourself often. Amen. Well, I, got, I heard a few amens in there, not many. thought I'd hear a few more. But amen. That's good. You repeat yourself. And we need to. Repetition was common in ancient literature. There was... Accept your way to tell a good story. What does repetition do? It builds suspense because you say it over. In Exodus, uh, our sense of anticipation mounts as we wait to see whether God will come down and dwell with his people or not. Repetition also reinforces the memory. It helps us learn. What better way to learn than the, than the layout, the layout of the tabernacle, thus the structure of our salvation, than to read it? about more than once, rather than skimming through these chapters or, or just skipping them all together. That's why we take time to read them carefully. Another reason Exodus repeats itself is to showcase Israel's obedience. This is one of the times, there's not many, but one of the times in Israel, Israel's history where they showcase, they, they are obedient to what God is, is, is saying, of course, through his representative, which is Moses, they're willing and obedient. And we need to showcase that because there's many a time we focus on their disobedience <laughs> for the last three or four months and probably several more months ahead of us. And it's easy always to look at a person's disobedience. You know, when talking to a couple or something, I'll hear about 
if they have more than one children, kids, uh, they'll say, well, this is, you know, this is the, this kid, and they're all, they're, they're good, and they're wonderful. But then, all of a sudden, they said, but the black sheep of the family. And it seems to be that their conversation is a whole lot more about the black sheep of the family than it is for the, the good sheep of the family, may say. <laughs> the good sheep, the white sheep, if you want to say it that way. It seems like it's easy to focus on the negative. You may have had 25 good things to happen to you last week that you didn't even think about. But if I ask you how you were last week, you'd probably bring to me up to me the things that were bad. Oh, preacher, I got up in the middle of the night and I stubbed my toe. What it was you, did you have a good night of rest all week? Oh, we don't talk about that. Did you have three meals last week? Oh, we don't talk about that. Did you have air conditioning in your house? Oh, we didn't talk about that. Hey, did you have a couch to sit on? Man, you got all these things, these blessings. That, man, it's above and beyond what we can compare. But you didn't talk about the good things, but you talked about that one time in the middle of the night. when You should have, you should have had that light, that little night light, but instead you didn't want to spend money on having an extra light in your house. So you don't have that little night light, so you got up in the middle of the night and you stubbed your toe, and you're mad because you stubbed your toe. You still haven't gotten over. We focus on the negative more than we focus on the positive. It is our nature. It is our nature. So, next is chapter 35 through 39. We see this repetition. We see this repetition. So, the first point is the second time around. The second point they were giving is giving what you have. Repetition is good, but secondly, we need to realize we need to give what we have. As we see there in verse 4, Moses spake in the congregation of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded thee. Take ye from among an offering unto the Lord. Whatsoever is willing heart, let him bring it, an offering of the Lord, gold and silver and brass and blue and purple and scarlet, five linen, goat's hair, ram skin, dyed red, badger skin, shittim wood, the oil for the light, spices full anointing oil, sweet incense, onyx stones, the stones to be set for the ephod and the breastplate. These are things they had acquired while they were in Egypt. They didn't make them on the way, primarily. They, they had them when they were in Egypt. And from their past, they carried these things with them. These things may sound strange to us, but they were needed for the building of the tabernacle. The gold, the silver, the bronze were used to make the altar, the art, the pillars, the furniture, the utensils, the linen yarn were used for the coverings, the curtains, the veils, the animal skins covered the tabernacle itself, white, while the Achaia wood, which I got to see over there, by the way, Achaia tree, was used to construct this framework. The oil, the incense, the spices were used by the priests who served inside with the precious stones adorning the sacred garments of the high priest. All these materials came from the Israelites. The people gave from what they had. In this way, they participated in the work of God. So when you give your tithe, you are actually participating in the work of God. When you give your faith promise, you are participating in the work of God. You can't go to Germany to be on the military base, but the Heppens can. You can't go over there to, uh, I'm thinking about the, the, the buoys in Indonesia. You can't get over there or go over to Taiwan. You can't get over there, but the Smiths are over there. You can't get over to some of these countries like uh, Brother Jim um, in the Philippines. But he's over there. So when you give towards faith promise, you're giving your tithes, your, 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 your faith promise above your tithes, so that that money can go where you can't go. It can be used to give the gospel. Because all of us can't go to the Philippines or to Indonesia 
or to any of the other, other places they go, but the money, by the grace of God, can. And now, we don't have to send it through the old snail mail. Now we just press a button and it gets there. Boom. Electronically. Or we pray and hope it does. We pray it does. This one author, Patrick Fairbam, talked about what the people brought. He said it consisted of most precious metals, the finest stuffs and the manufacture, the embroidered workmanship, the riches, the most gorgeous colors, the most beautiful and costly gems. It was absolutely necessary by means of some external apparatus to bring out the idea of surpassing glory, magnificence of Jehovah as the king of Israel and the singular honor which was enjoyed by those who admitted to the minister and served before him. This could only be done by the rich and costly nature of the materials which were employed in the construction of the tabernacle and the official garments of those who were appointed to serve in his courts. Such materials, therefore, were used in the construction of the tabernacle as were best fitted for conveying the suitable impressions of the greatness and the glory of the being for whose particular habitation it was erected. Wow. They gave willingly. And that's how God wants us to give, right? We don't have a system before you get out. We don't have two two burly guys out there at the four, at the, at the four, in the foyer, you know, after we talk about tithing or faith promises, say, we're going to shake you down. I don't give, 20, I don't have 20, I don't do 25 stanzas of the invitation of, you know, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. <laughs> I've been in churches that after about the 25th, I'll give you everything. What credit card? Visa, MasterCard, American Express. Let's let me out of this place. <laughs> Whatever it takes. Ooh, I tell you what, why do we don't do that? Because it's of God. It's not man. Obviously, we, we, we talk about the need. We encourage it. But, dear friend, it's not because you have to. There's a great missionary, Don Sisk, would say, you get to. I don't have to. The only thing I actually have to do in this life is go to heaven. You realize that? You actually don't have to do anything the rest of your life. The one thing you have to do, do if you know Jesus Christ is go to heaven. Now, there's a lot of things I should do. That's a different story. There's a lot of things we should do. But the only thing you have to do the rest of your life is go to heaven. But these folks gave out of a willing heart. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Every man according to the purpose in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly. Not grudgingly. Like, oh, man, I hate to give this $5. I hate to give this $10. I don't want this money to come out of my Social Security check. I don't want this money to come out of my retirement check. I don't, I, don't want to do, I don't want to do it. Oh, my dear friend, if you're ever like that, let me give you some, let me give you some advice. Don't give it. It'd be better for you to keep that $5, that $10, that $20, that 15 cents in your pocket. God is not a beggar. God's not a beggar. He owns the cattle on a thousand on the thousand hills, and he owns the hills underneath it too. If God wants it, He'll provide for it. He always has. He always will. He says there, Paul, in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for God loveth the cheerful giver. I don't know about you, but I want to be what God loves. How about you? I want to be. If God loves a cheerful giver, I want to be. That means that word cheerful means hilarious, happy, excited. Joyful, can't wait, can't wait to do it, glad to do it. That's how we should give. Not like, oh, I can't give them any money. Oh, dear friend, go book, go back to the back to the book of Malachi 
you don't want to be a God robber. You don't want God to send that devourer. I firmly believe if the children of God do not give willingly and cheerfully to God, he will take that tithe from you. It will be that hospital visit. It will be that broken down car, that broken down air condition, that broken down refrigerator, that broken down washing machine. It will be the sickness in your family. I believe without a shadow of a doubt, God will take his. Better to say it's yours than for him to take from grasp's hands. It's always better to say, Lord, it's yours. Because, dear friend, think about it. It's all his anyway. The breath that I breathe, it's from God. The eyes that I see with are from God. The ears that I hear with, from God. The mouth that I speak with, they're from God. The legs that I hand have, they're from God. The feet that I have are from God. Everything I have is from God. He giveth, the Lord giveth. The Lord taketh away, as Job said. Blessed be the name of the Lord. If it's all his, why gripe over 10%? Because <laughs> he could take it away like that. Just like that. It's a dear friend. Never, never, never quibble about the tithe. Be grateful. Have a willing heart. We have the opportunity on a regular basis to give. God wants us to give. Number three, giving what you do. We also, we also offer God what we do, not just what we give, but what we do. Building the tabernacle took more than just solid wood and fine linen. It required the energetic use of people's gifts and talents, especially in the arts and craft. So it wasn't just the physical giving of the gold and fine linen and other things. As we read, as we read in, in verse 10, Every wise-hearted among you shall come and make of the Lord hath com commanded tabernacle, his tent, his covering, his thatches, his boards, his bars, his pillars, his sockets, the ark, the staves thereof, and the mercy seat, and the veil of the covering. We read this. The inventory reminds us how the tabernacle was made. At the center was the, the large tent covered with curtains and divided into two sections, the holy place and the holy of holies. This is where the sacred furniture went, the altar of incense, the golden lampstand, the table of showbread, and, of course, the ark and the covenant and the holy of holies were stood there. The tabernacle was surrounded by a white fence and formed with a courtyard, and the courtyard uh, went the large altar where the priests offered sacrifice and the bronze Basin for cleansing, making all these required a large number of people with a wide range of skills. And that's what a church is. A church is not just someone, thank God, who would say, well, we got people who can build, thank God. We got people who can sing, thank God. We got people who are good at farming, thank God. We have people who are good at numbers, thank God. We have people who are good uh, with their hands, thank God. We got people who maybe are not so good with their hands, but they're good with other things. We, and that's what a church is. It's, it's pictured in the New Testament as a body. If we had all a bunch of heads around here, we'd be in trouble. We need a neck. We need, a, we need some hands. We need some fingers. We need some toes. We need some legs. We need a torso. It's a body. And that's what the church is. It's all the different members coming together as a collective body to make up the church. It's an important principle that applies to us today. Romans chapter 12, verse 6, having the gifts... Uh, differing according to the grace is given to us, whether prophecy, let us prophesy according to the portion of faith, or ministry, let us wait on our ministering. Or he that teacheth, teaching, teacheth on teaching, or he that exhorteth on exhortation, he that giveth, let him do with simplicity, he that ruleth with diligence, he that showeth mercy and with cheerfulness. So all these different people 
with all these different gifts, the parts make up the great whole. And that's the wonderful invention that God himself created and not man. This means we should do what God has called you to do. Do you know if you're part of the church, God has called you to be here to do something specific? Some of you sing in the choir. Some of you are in nursery. Some of you teach. Some of you have different aspects, some of you gifts. But every person in the church, as members of the church, should have something that you're willing to do. You're part of it. What would you say a finger? What, what would be good as a finger if a finger just stayed straight the whole time? Well, it, it, it'd get hurt a lot, wouldn't it? Well, that, that finger is needed. What if you just had a thumb and that thumb wasn't used at all? It just stuck out. Well, that thumb, that thumb would get in trouble. It's needed to be used. And every member, every part of the church needs to be used. That's why I say to you on a regular basis, if you're here and you're a member of this church and you're not doing something for Jesus, you should come to me or Brother, brother Jimmy, Brother Pete, or Brother Joe and say, hey, how can I be used of God? Because it's God's design to use us. He wants to use us to complete his will. You say, preacher, all I can do is pray. Oh, dear friend, I think you, you go back and listen to the message this morning. And you'll hear the importance of prayer. Prayer is the most important thing you can do. I've had some folks who are older in years that say, preacher, I can't do what I used to do. I said, well, can you do one thing? They say, what? I said, pray for me. And pray for this church. That's the most important thing you can do for us. And thank God many of them do. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 10, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. God has given each one of us talents and abilities. And if we don't use those talents and, the, and, and abilities to minister the grace of God or the ability he's given us, the dear friend, we're wasting it. We're wasting it. How was this given? Number four, straight from the heart. Israelites did that they gave what they had to give and did as they skilled they were skilled to, and they did it right away. Chapter 35, verse 20, look what it says. And all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses, and they came, every one whose heart was willing, stirred up, and every everyone whom his spirit made willing, and they brought the Lord's offering to the work of the tabernacle and the congregation for his all his service and for the holy garments. They came together. They saw the need, and they were willing to give. Wow. Oh, this showcases something you don't often see, the obedience of the children of Israel. At this time, they were willing to give. They were willing to give. It's a moment to Savior. It's one of the rare times in Exodus, indeed, in the Old, old, old Testament, that the God's people actually did what they were supposed to do. The heart is the center of a person. Their willing heart. It's the sin of a person. It's the true inner self. More than anything else, what God wants for us is not the billfold. He wants our hearts. He wants our hearts. That's the center of mankind, who we are. Robert Murray McShane was grieved by what he perceived as a lack of generosity in his congregation. He said, I'm concerned for the poor, but more for you. I know not what Christ will say to you in that great day. I fear there are many hearing me who will know well that they are not Christians because they do not love to give. To give largely and liberally, not grudgingly at all, requires a new heart. An old heart would rather part with its life blood than its money. Oh, my friends, he said, enjoy your money. Take the most of it. Give none of it away. Enjoy, enjoy it quickly, for I can tell you, you will be beggars throughout eternity. 
Ooh. Can you imagine meeting Jesus Christ someday? And though we don't, Jesus Christ has paid for our sins and thank God for it. But we do give an account for our actions on this world. It's called the Bema Seat of Christ. Imagine meeting God someday, not giving anything back to him. I think there'll be some loss of crowns at that time. When you're the competition and you don't win, there's sadness. There was a whole lot of sad teams yesterday who didn't win. Half the people played, half the folks, half the folks, half everybody who played, half of those didn't win. The other team lost. In heaven, there's going to be some sadness because not everybody's going to get a crown. Because they were not willing to be obedient, they didn't get what they could have. There's going to be some sadness in heaven. That's why I believe one of the reasons why at the end, towards the end of Revelation, he says, God says, I'm going to wipe all the tears from their eyes. So I think part of that sadness is we're not going to get the full reward we could have gotten if we were obedient to God. I think part of that is tithing. I think part of that is witnessing. I, th- I think part of that is being obedient, reading his word and praying and being the Christians we should be. But I think ultimately, because heaven won't be heaven, if we could always remember the failures we had in life, he'll wipe away the tears from our eyes. God has given us the opportunity to do great things for him. It says in verse 22, And they came both men and women, as many as were willing-hearted, and brought bracelets and earrings and rings and ta- tablets, all jewels of gold. And every man that offered, offered a gold, of, gold unto the Lord, and every man with whom it was found blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen and goat's hair and redskins, uh, and redskins of rams and badger skins, and, and brought them. Everyone that did offer an offering of silver and brass brought Lord's offering. Every man that whom it was found shittim wood for any work of the service brought it. What they had, they gave. The Israelites brought everything that was needed, silver, gold, wood, cloth, animal skins, presented as an offering to the Lord. Giving, giving actually is worship to God. When we give our tithes on Sunday morning, it is an act of worship to God, saying, you are worthy, and I'm giving back a portion of what you've given to me. The Bible says all the Israelites, men and women, were willing, were willing, brought to the Lord free will offerings for all the work the Lord through Moses had commanded them to do so. Two people specifically, he singles out for this special mention. First of all, the women. Verse 25, and all the women were, who were wise-hearted did spin their hands and brought that which they had spun, both blue and of purple and of scarlet. In a fine linen, two people, he, two groups of people, he specially uh, focuses on that were willing to help in the, the building, the, the, the establishment of the tabernacle. The first were the women. The reason the Bible singles these women out is to show that their gifts were essential to God's work. Being building the tabernacle was a job for both men and women, according to their gifts. Men of Israel were not called to serve as elders or prophets, but rather than getting hung up on that, they were, they were called to do something for the Lord. If it wasn't for the women in this church, we wouldn't have a church. And it's probably true of most churches. Much of the church is women. There's only two things a woman cannot do, according to the scriptures. They cannot pastor, and they cannot be deacon. They cannot pastor, and they cannot be deacon. You say, preacher, tell me, tell, show me that. Show me that. Well, I know we're getting towards the end, but I want to show it to you. So, you, so you, if anybody says to you, uh, tell me, show me where it says in the Bible that that women can't be pastors. Well, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, 
Paul writing to Timothy, chapter, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1, this is true, saying, if a man desired the office of a bishop, he desired the good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife. What woman can be the husband of one wife? Well, nowadays. But most of the time, a husband of one wife is a man. It's a man. Qualifications for a deacon. Likewise, must a deacon be grave, not double-tongued, nor given to much wine, nor greedy of filthy lucre. Hold the mystery of the faith and the pure conscience, and let these also be first proved, let, and let them be use of the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so, must their wives be grave. So who's he talking to? He's not, talking, he's not saying, women, let your wives be grave. He's talking to men. He's talking to Timothy, and he's saying, men, let your wives be grave. Why he's saying that deacons... A deacon is a man, not slanderous, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife. Now, in the perversion of the day, people say, well, a man can be a woman and a woman can be a man. That's why you have women pastors. And a lot of people say, well, that was in Paul's day. It's a funny thing. They'll go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, talk about the love chapter, and say, well, this is Bible. But they get to 1 Timothy and say, well, it's not Bible. No, dear friend, the same person who wrote 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the first same person who wrote 1 Timothy chapter 3. Learn the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. A woman is not to be a pastor. A woman is not supposed to be a deacon. And I was down at Sonny's a few Thursdays ago, and I got around some of my Southern Baptist friends that I eat with sometimes down there. And we were talking about, I don't know how we got on the topic, we were just talking about church and what we do in church. And one gentleman said, well, we have deacons, deaconesses. I said, you have deaconesses? I said, well, I said we, don't have no, we don't have any deaconesses. We just have, we have two deacons, two men. But I thought to myself, how in the world did they get from the scriptures deaconesses? Because if you look, and I did a word search on this before I actually came here, there's only two times the word deacon is mentioned in the scriptures, and it's right here in 1 Timothy, twice. But 1973, the NIV Bible was published. And let me tell you what it says. I commend you to our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church. Ah, the NIV said that. But what does the King James Bible says? It says, I commend you, Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church. So what was happening? 1973, NIV came out. People were going, people were reading it said, Preacher, right here, Romans chapter 16, 1. Phoebe, a deacon. We can have deacons. No. If they stuck to the King James Bible the way they should have, they would have saw, no, it doesn't, it doesn't mean deacon. It means servant. The qualifications for a deacon is to be a man. You say, man, you just don't like women? No, I married one. Dear friends, we follow the Bible. Whatever it says, this is what the Bible says. It has nothing to do with personality. It has nothing to do against men or women. We just follow what the Scripture says. If the Scripture says that women can be deacons, we would allow women to be deacons. If the Scripture says women can be pastors, we would follow what the Bible says. We just follow what the Bible says. That's why we can say we're a Bible-believing church. Because we follow what the Bible says. How hard is that? How hard is that? Well, it's real hard nowadays. Because people say, well, I interpret it to be what I want to interpret. And that's when people get in trouble. Well, they interpret the way they want they wanted to interpret because it meets their needs. It meets their needs. 
the leaders brought onyx stones. The second group of people were not just the women, they were the leaders. Israel's rulers, the leaders brought onyx stones and other gems to be mounted on the ephod, the breastpiece. They also brought spices and olive oil for the light of the anointing oil for the fragrant incense. That's Exodus chapter 35, verses 27 28. The Bible gives many warnings, of course, about the dangers of wealth. We know it. Again, Timothy, the love of money is the root of all evil. Large sums of money obviously tempt people to be selfish and proud. But when, I, when financial prosperity is combined with personal godliness, wealth becomes a powerful force for spiritual good. It took naturally a lot of money. It took a lot of giving to, provide, to be provided for so the tabernacle could be built. So we're thankful for those who give, whether it be the $1 or the $5 or the $500. We're thankful for it. The money, obviously, is a powerful tool in advancing the gospel. But ultimately, what is the greatest gift? In the days of Moses, God's people did their giving at the tabernacle. This was the place where they offered God what they had and what they did with a willing heart. Today, God's great building is the church. We don't have tabernacle anymore. Once the tabernacle was a place where God lived with his people, today the dwelling place is the church that he fills with his glorious spirit and we who have the Holy Spirit in us. The Bible does describe the church as a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place in which the God lives by His Spirit. God has called us, both men and women, to help the church by giving Him what we have and what we do from our heart, our gifts, our talents, our abilities are all for Him, all to Jesus. I surrender all to Him. I freely give. What do you give, Jesus? What do you give Jesus? If I was about to read a book besides the Bible, there's three books I would, I would definitely try to read. Number one is Pilgrim's Progress by John Wooden. Number two is Fox's Book of Martyrs, Martyrs by, John, by uh, John Fox. But number three would be The Hiding Place by Corey Tenboom. Those would be three books that outside the Bible I'd be sure to read. In her book, A Hiding Place, Corey Tinboon remembers her aunt received the news that she had a terminal illness. The woman whom Corey called Tanty Jans was known for her Christian work. She supported charitable causes over, all over Holland, writing tracts, giving talks, raising money. She seemed proud of her spiritual achievements, and although people said she was a good woman, somehow, somehow, she didn't always remind them of Jesus. Then came the day when the medical tests indicated that Tanty Jans had only a few weeks to live. The family wondered how she would take the news. We will tell her together, Corey's father and perhaps said, perhaps she will take heart from all that she's accomplished. She puts great store on her accomplishments. They all filed into her study. When Tanny Jans looked up, she gave a little gasp of recognition. Instantly, she knew that were why they were there. The family sought to console her. They told her that she would have a great reward for her labors. They reminded her of all the organizations she had founded, the articles she had written, the money she had raised, the talks she had given. But Tanny Jans refused to be comforted. Her proud face crumbled, but she put her hands over her face and began to cry. Empty, empty. She choked through her tears. How can we bring anything to God? What does he care for our little tricks and trinkets? Then something amazing happened. Tanny Jans lowered her hands, and with her tears still streaming down her face, she whispered, Dear Jesus, I thank you that we must come with empty hands. I thank you that you have done all, all on the cross, that all we need in life or death is to be sure of this. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. 
It's what Christ has done for us already. She thanked God that she was able to do anything for the Lord. Oh, dear friend, how do we give? I'm just talking about monetarily, though obviously that includes it. I'm talking about our life. I'm talking about our life. How do we give of our life? Is it in a willing? Is it out of, it's not just out of hopefully rote obedience. I don't just do what I do because I have to, because I don't want to be embarrassed if I don't show up or I don't do this. I want, I want to do this out of a, a willing heart, a spirit of desire and longing to please him who died for us. That should be our attitude. Every time we come to church, I don't have to do this. I get to do this. Every time we sing in the choir, I don't have to do this. I get to do this. Every time we give an offering or, or tithe, I don't have to do this. I get to do this. Anytime, every time we go to visitation, oh, I don't have to do this. I get to do this. Every time we pass out a track, I don't have to do this. I get to do this. Because someday when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saddened that we didn't get to do more. None of us will stand before him and boast of all the things we've done. We will be on our knees or on our face wishing we'd done more. Wishing we'd have been at visitation more. Wishing we'd have read his word more. Wishing we'd have prayed more. Wishing we'd supported missions more. Wishing, looking at those who received the crown and wishing we could have said, all to Jesus I surrender and then actually not just sing it, but live it. Someday, that will be us. What will we choose to do today? echoes throughout eternity. Father, we thank you for your mercy. Thank you for allowing us to give. Lord, may it always be out of willing heart. May we come here each time, not out of duty, not, not because we have to, but we get to. We get to give back to him who gave it all for us, who laid it all out for us, who died on that rugged cross and shed his blood, was buried and rose again the third day. We're so thankful and grateful. Help us, Lord, have a grateful heart. Help us not to do anything for you grudgingly. Help us not to do anything in a sense that we must do it out of sheer obedience. Oh, we know we should, but help us to be thankful and grateful as our head are bowed, eyes are closed. I hope and pray you know Christ is your Savior. But if not, I, I plead with you to come see me or see my wife or Brother Pete, Brother Travis after church. We can tell you about Jesus if you don't know Christ as your Savior. But dear friend, I'm going to ask you, how's your spirit? How's your attitude? Are you gotten to the place sometimes where you say, man, I, you know, I had to come to church. I had to come to church. Are you getting to the place where, oh, man, I, I got to give that money. I got, are you doing it? Are you doing it out of your willing? Or are you doing it because you feel like you're obligated to do it? Are you doing it because you, you do it because you love Jesus? you do it because you feel like you have to do it how's your attitude friend we can get to the place in life where we're just we're coming to church well you know I, 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 I gotta show up I gotta do you do it because you want to not because you have to head bowed eyes closed how's your attitude about this area of giving are you giving out of a willing heart or are you giving out of a grudging heart father Help us, Lord Jesus, help us. As the piano plays, let's stand to our feet. How's your attitude about what you're doing for Jesus? 
Are you doing it because you have to? Or are you doing it because you want to? I'm struggling. I'm struggling. My attitude about being in church, my attitude about giving, my attitude about doing anything for Jesus is not what it should be. I'm struggling. Would you pray for me? Anybody be honest about that tonight? I'm struggling. I'm struggling. It's easy to get there. It's easy to go through the routine. It's easy just to keep on keeping on, doing it out of just duty. But we do it out of love, not because we have to, but because we get to. Maybe God's spoken to your heart. Maybe we need to change our attitude. Ask God to help us, refresh us, remind us of all that he's done for us. How grateful we should be. How obedient we should be. How willing we should be. May the Spirit of God refresh us and help us to see his glorious face. And be thankful and grateful for all that he's done. Then live for him out of that grateful and thankful heart.